when they come in they're broken they are so broken and that's why we use so much compassion at work and with what we do every day it's we show them compassion and we tell them we're proud of them every single day and that's when they start to regain that hope is when we tell them well you're one day sober and proud of you that's barbara ballantyne manager at camp hope the montreal lake cree nation child and family services agency where she is the director of the land-based crystal meth rehab center She's our guest on this episode of Minabamatsuin, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm Carol Hopkins, CEO of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, an organization that supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. And today, I'm hosting Minabamatsuin. Minabamatsuin means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and for those that we care about, a good life. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are facing. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness, one that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, a connection to community, and above all else, kindness and compassion. Today, I'm thrilled to have Barbara Ballantyne on the podcast, She has a rich history and many years of work in the field of mental wellness, specifically in addressing crystal methamphetamine amongst families involved with the child and family services. She focuses on addictions and recovery through the Camp Hope, which is, again, a land-based therapeutic program. It's oriented towards families and it's located in a remote area of Montreal Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 6 territory of Saskatchewan. The Camp Hope program, the land-based program, has operated for several years and has served several hundred families with children and helped them to access various recovery services. Welcome, Barb. Welcome to the Minopimatsuin podcast. I'd like to start off by asking you to describe for us, how did Camp Hope get started and what is your story in that? Camp Hope actually started in uh, 2015 and when they first opened their doors, it was uh, mainly, um, it was a place for where children and families could go and reunite again after being in care for a period of time. And uh, not too long after that opening, for that uh, reunification home. Uh, Montreal Lake experienced a wildfire and it was devastating and it was like, it was so bad that people's houses burnt down. That's how bad it was. So they had maybe two hours to move people out of the community. Um, 1,200, 1,200 people, two hours, get out of the community, wait for buses. You're only allowed to take one bag 
out of the community because that's all it's going to fit in the bus. And you weren't sure which bus you were going on because they were just pointing, pointing, pointing. Uh, You're going here, you're going there, you're going here with your child kind of thing. So by the time they were getting close to their destinations, um, one of the buses would uh, turn and go a different route. And because this space was... Oh, yes, it, so it was full over here. So now we got to go over here. So now whole families are separated. There's teenagers that have never been on their own. And now they're away from their families. They're away from their homes. They've never been to these city centers. They've never been this far from home alone without support. So basically that's what happened. And uh, they did experience a lot of trauma with that um, displacement so when, uh, when, when they returned from the community, they were gone for weeks. The whole community was uh, evacuated for weeks into these city centers, and uh, there they became numbers. So if you had medication, if you had something that, uh, that um, needed to be delivered to you, they called your number. You were not a person. And this brought a lot of flashbacks to the people um, of residential school where you were also a number. So after 2015, the evacuation, um, six months after the evacuation, they counted 110 people addicted to crystal meth. And this was all from the evacuation where all of these young people were alone. Everybody, all of the drug dealers, whoever knew that they were alone, they knew that they were getting money from uh, from um, the government or from Red Cross. So they hovered around these uh, emergency centers and they they actually like befriended some of these kids and got them into this stuff so that's how the big numbers started and um at that time nobody really knew much about crystal meth uh, what to do about it and by mm-hmm. ni- 2019 those numbers had risen mm-hmm. so dramatically that out of 1,200 people, they now had half of their population addicted on reserve, and it was 600 people now that are that are uh, addicted to this stuff wow. because it just spread like a wildfire at the time. Between that time, Camp Hope, they 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 did the, the community formed the community uh, an emergency response team in response to this uh, to this um, drug. That's when Crystal uh, the Crystal Meth Rehabilitation Center was open. And that's Camp Hope. So they switched the program around at the time. So in 2019, when they switched the program around, that's when uh, it became Crystal Meth Rehabilitation Center or um, land-based. So you moved from a community of safety where teenagers have relationships with their parents and with their family. And they had to leave everything behind. They lost their homes. They lost their connection to family and the relationships. They went to a new environment where they were unfamiliar with the city, but also unfamiliar with the drugs that were offered to them. And they were alone. Nobody knew what it was yet at the time. So there wasn't much talk about crystal meth. And anybody that did the drug in the community, um, anybody that was on the harder drugs, there wasn't many people there because it wasn't accessible. So now they're gone to these bigger city centers. Mm-hmm. Now they they have access to these um, to this drug, and they're trying it. 
Um, and it's not necessarily because they wanted to try it. Maybe they were smoking a joint and it was laced. And that's how their addiction started to rise and rise. Yes. They didn't even know they were taking yes. crystal meth or they were so, using crystal meth. And you quickly went from a few people to hundreds of people from the community now yes. dependent and on crystal I'll meth. And I'll share a few stories um, of how some of them got addicted it they, it was people that don't even do any type of drug people that are like you and me people you have teenagers you have the boyfriend and the girlfriend that are the beautiful girl the handsome boy that so smart they're gonna go to university and they're gonna go start they're gonna be so they're gonna do so good in life and now they're in crystal meth lots of hope for them lots of hope and for them they live with an addict. Maybe the sister, the girl lives with an addict. The brother's an addict. He just finished smoking crystal meth in the bathroom. And she walks in. So she starts to inhale the chemicals that are in there. Ah. Pretty soon she's getting dependent on it. And she's starting mm -hmm. to have withdrawals. And she doesn't know that she's actually getting she doesn't understand, she doesn't understand why, why she's feeling or how way. she became such an addict at just one smoke. After she smelled the first, the first, the first time she smelled it, she didn't know why she needed that again, 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 again. Same thing with uh, the grandparents. So the grandparents um, that live with their maybe grandson or their adult child, and he smokes, but he goes outside to go smoke. He comes back in thinking that grandparents are safe, but he puts his jacket down on the uh, table at, at the chair. And as soon as he puts his jacket down, grandpa goes and sits on top of the jacket. Well, now what's happening? Grandpa is starting to um, pick up all of the chemicals that are on the jacket and he's absorbing it into his skin. Now he's starting to get dependent on that chemical, on the drug. Now he doesn't know why he's uh, he's all of a sudden an addict, and we might be walking into a um, into a store one day and we see Grandpa with a cane and he's standing outside, seventy years old, and he's asking you for money, and you st people wonder why is he why is he there? How did he get there? Well, that's why it's because he lived with an addict. He didn't start off like that. He was. A normal person. He he did sweats. He went to ceremony. But he lived with an addict. And that's where he picked up the addiction. Is it customary then, Barb, what you're saying, that elders will allow their grandchildren to live in their house yes. and use drugs, maybe because they don't understand yes. the impact of those drugs? It would be natural for that grandparent to say you know, they're, they're bothered by it and maybe ask them to stop using, but they wouldn't necessarily tell them they have to leave the home or that they can't live there anymore. That wouldn't be customary. I've seen things, I've heard people talk about things like this, um, community meetings, gatherings, anything that's happening and people are, oh, well, the chief and council are not taking care of this problem. They're not taking care of that problem. And what are the chief and council going to do about meth? And you actually see people standing up um, and saying, well, the last chief never took care of the, the problem with, the, with marijuana and alcohol, and it's still around. 
there's no comparison, but they just do not understand that there's no comparison there. The drug, the, the, the crystal meth is so, so powerful and so destructive. It's poison to our people. Barb, you were saying that the community is very familiar with cannabis use and they're familiar with alcohol use. And maybe sometimes the impact of alcohol use makes people angry or sad or causes trauma, but we're familiar with that kind of trauma. We're familiar with the behavior of alcohol use. But when it comes to crystal meth, it sounds like what you're saying is there's not a lot of understanding about crystal meth and its impact. And so there's less tolerance, less patience, and less understanding for people who use crystal meth. Is that true? I would say it would be about half and half. Okay. Half of the people really do understand exactly what's, what it's bringing, what's happening, what's, um, what the impacts are and what we are facing in the future if um, this uh, epidemic doesn't come to a stop. Um, and here I'll tell you the story about the, the Gugum, the granny. So she was standing at the, um, at the kitchen one day and she was holding a knife cutting into bannock that she had just made. She lives with Granson. Granson is in a state of psychosis after smoking crystal meth. Granson walks in the house and yells, Gugum. And she looks back and she's holding the knife and she says, what grandson? Right away, the grandson steps back, starts yelling at his grandmother and says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were, you were out to get me. And I knew this, I knew you were plotting against me all of these, all of this time. Grandmother is very, very lucky that she knew what to do. And that she had seen something somewhere that told her that you do not, you have to watch what you say. You have to watch what you do while a person is under psychosis, under the crystal myth, because they don't know what they are doing. So what she did was she put the knife down and she said, she covered it with a tea towel. And she said, grandson, no, 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 I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm not against you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I just want you to eat. You look sick. I just wanted you to eat. Take it. Take this knife. Throw it in the wood stove. Burn it. I don't need it. So grandson, he came out of it and he picked up the knife and he went and put it in the in the in the wood stove and he sat there and he watched it burn to a crisp. But if grandmother did not know what to do and she didn't see and she didn't go to one of the informational meetings that they have at the at the health center or at the youth um, center. If she didn't hear about things like that to watch for, I don't think it would have been a good outcome if she didn't know how to respond to that. I know there are people out there, there are people in the community that do know exactly what to expect and that they know what happens, but there are some they're in denial, basically. They're in denial that their family member is on the drug, and they're in denial that the drug is inside their house. In those situations where there's less tolerance and less patience, um, how do you think that affects people who are using crystal meth in terms of 
their recovery or their wellness journey? Um, do you see people who are using crystal meth who are going to always be on crystal meth? Is that the attitude of the community or is the attitude um, one that we have to support them now and they're moving towards recovery? So right now where I see the community is they are doing everything they can to stop this from from destroying, completely destroying their community. They have security. They have a vehicle, security vehicle, who a team of security who is on um, in the community all 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time. They take calls. If, if the RCMP can't get there fast enough, it's the community security team that gets there. And they do the, the initial call right away. We have um, a mental health team uh, with the well with the uh, health center, and I think they have about four or five mental health workers um, staff that are always um, available and they're always on call. Uh, we have various uh, mental health and addictions um, programs. We have AA. We have NA meetings. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of support for them. It's very unfortunate that some of them will not take the help that is offered to them. And um, most of the time when they're not taking the help, it's because they're already involved in the gang life and they're not able to get out of that gang life without risking their lives. Okay. So all of these resources that you're talking about in the community, there are not typical resources in every First Nations community like the mental health supports and the increased community security. And I imagine those are supports that came along after uh, the community realized the extent of the issues um, resulting from being evacuated out of your community and then coming back home. Mm-hmm. When we were in Toronto and I did this presentation at, um, at the mental health summit, some ladies from the Ranj came and introduced themselves to me and shook my hand and, um, told me, you know what, we forgot that it was such a big impact that the evacuations have, but they said they saw a really big increase in Larange within their band after their evacuation as well. And I think theirs was a few years after uh, Montreal Lake's evacuation. So they saw my presentation and they said, yes, this is exactly how ours started as mm. well. So I'm I'm positive that there's so many other communities out there in Canada that are going through this. And this is one of the reasons why. And it's the evacuations. It's the displacement. It's the trauma. It's the culture shock. It's everything that they have not worked on in their lives before. Uh, intergenerational trauma, you know, residential school, everything that that we're already suffering from. These evacuations, these displacements, these just add on to what we're already compounding the trauma. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Are those resources still in your community today? You talked about this in 2015. And so you're able to secure the additional resources and you still have those resources in your community. We still have those resources every day. There is some kind of programming happening. We have children, we have, we have a youth center that just went up not too long ago. We're also, I'm opening up a, a youth uh, facility. I'm not sure exactly when we're opening up, but it's it's for the youth of Montreal Lake Cree mm-hmm. Nation. 
because um, we do know that a lot of the users are um, very young now. There, there are youth. There are thirteen to fifteen year olds um, and even older. We are in the process of uh, opening up a facility, especially for their rehabilitation, for their learning, their their safe environment. Earlier, Barbara, you started talking about uh, land-based, um, taking people out on the land. Is that part of the program that you're offering? So our program, it is a land-based uh, therapeutic treatment program okay. where Crystal met. Um, we are out. We are in a camp that is 10 kilometers out of the community, mm-hmm. and that is the best way to have one of these uh, um, the best treatment facilities because. The best treatment because then you were not going to have people knocking at your door or trying to get to your relatives that are in their cabin. So we are 10 kilometers out of situated, 10 kilometers out of the community. We have um, te- seven cabins where our relatives stay with their children okay. and they learn how to be the family again. Mom, um, dad, they, they go through programming and... We do um, we do everything over there. We do our grief and loss. We do our abandonment. We do trauma, interge- intergenerational trauma. We do traditional parenting. We have an elder that uh, works on site, and he does daily smudging. They do their daily circle talks every single morning. They go to their designated cabin to go and do their programming with the elder and then uh, a couple of the other ladies who are the support workers. They have their circle talks, their circle time, everything that goes on in that cabin stays in there. And usually when they when they come out, they are puffy eyed and they have released so much. So many things and, uh, that they weren't able to release before. Yes. So and then in the afternoon, what we do is um, we go out, they go snaring. Every second day they go and check their snares. They go trapping. They do um, winter net um, setting. Last uh, couple of weeks ago, we uh, we had a, a moose hide out, and we showed them how to prepare a moose hide. Um, they went for their annual hunting trip. They went to go hunt, um, gather some moose, and then uh, for the winter. Um, so we do a lot of um, bringing back our traditions, showing them how we used to live off the off of the land because they have lost. Um, our um, culture and they have lost the language so we also teach them Cree we are trying to bring back the language as well so Barb when you're describing the camp and you're describing the therapeutic program you talked about elders are the elders the therapists in your program we have mental health therapists and we also have addiction workers yes and as a they work as a team they work as a team and any disclosures or anything that happens inside of the um, the cabin with uh, the elder and the, the support workers uh, because they are the the ones that have that hold all the trust that they're, they're, they're the ones that um, that are the closest with the relatives so anything that happens there um, they notify uh, myself and uh, mental health right away and tell them that today was a very heavy day um, be expecting them to maybe sleep um, a lot today or to be kind of withdrawn today. A and, lot of um, compassion. I've, 
Yes. So I've started um, giving them books. I've actually given them, uh, made them uh, some dream books a couple of weeks ago. And I told them it was especially for this. Um, when you go to bed and you start dreaming of things, if you, if this dream wakes you up, write, write it in this dream book, write the date, go back to your, um, to your daily journaling because they do daily journaling as well. So I tell them to go back to their daily journaling and then to go back to the, to the night they had this dream. Okay. What did they release on this day? What was so heavy in their heart that they released this day and they finally, finally told somebody and what did they dream about this night? And it all fits together. And every time they tell us, well, this is what we talked about yesterday. And then last night I I had this dream. Mm. That's so weird, they say. So they are starting to see that. They're making um, a spiritual connection. That's uh, how the elders talk about our dream time. It's our communication from our spirit and helping us to Mm -hmm. resolve or to see more of our daily living. Um, to yeah. to know what we need to do to move forward in our life, and is that what the what you're talking about? Yes, that's what exactly what I'm talking about, and um, we don't force our culture on them either. They do have to be a part of the programming. Um, they do have to come with us when they go to the sweats. Um, we have a the elder holds a sweat at his house um, every every weekend on Sunday, so he holds a sweat for them. And um, they do have to come with us to the sweat, but they don't have to go inside the sweat. As long as they know the protocols, they see what is going on and they're learning about the culture, Mm -hmm. right? But if they choose to go to church, then we'd also take them to church. Mm -hmm. And so that compassion is connecting them to to their spirit, whether they connect through a sweat lodge or whether they connect in in a church. It's allowing them Mm -hmm. to uh, rest when they need it. In that journey of recovery, how difficult is that for people? When you hear people have been using crystal meth on a daily basis and and now they're moving towards not using on a daily basis, how difficult is that for somebody um, to not use? What are, what are they experiencing when they're not using crystal meth after using it for such a long time? So in our program, we do not take referrals from outside resources. Like we, if you have your kids taken away from you from social services, well, that does not guarantee you a spot in the program. Our program is for people that know they want to quit. They're ready to quit. So when they come there, they have already gone through detox. um, And then we sit down and we talk with them. And we, we have um, workbooks for them and we show them how what to do when they're going through withdrawals and stuff like that. But uh, we also offer them Indian medicine. So we buy this Indian medicine off of um, a lady um, uh, that uh, has a company called Neepsy. And we buy valerian tinctures from her. And this valerian tincture, they put one dropper under their tongue every time they start to feel that they need this drug. Mm-hmm. So um, we do offer that instead of the methadone, and it does work. Um, I did have a lady in um, November that joined the program, and she was sick. She was sick, but she, she knew that she wanted to quit, and she told us that the last time I tried, my heart stopped, 
Um, I know I need to quit. It. I'm going to die if I don't. So she's in our program. But when she first came in, she was so sick. And that's what we gave her. Um, like the shakes continued for, for two weeks after the detox, uh, after she went to the detox program. So that's what we gave her was the valerian um, tincture and the rat, uh, no, the rabbit root tincture. So every time she started feeling sick, nauseous, and she started shaking, having the sweats, she would put this dropper under her tongue and she was shaking under her blanket. She would put the dropper under her tongue um, and she said it started to work. I actually slept last night. Last night was the first night I slept, she said, and that was the first day she started taking the drops. So um, we do offer them that. Um, we have chaga. We have all of the medicines that are available there. Um, that we do have them in stock there at all times, and they drink the chaga. We tell them exactly what kind of nutritional values it has for them, how it helps diabetes, how it helps your heart disease, everything like that. So um, we have nobody on methadone right now. Uh, the last person we had that was on methadone was this summer, and I think that's um, a great thing, especially with uh, um, how how well they've been um, how well they have been responding to the to the traditional medicines. Barbara, thank thank you for uh, sharing with us about the use of the natural medicines as prescribed by the uh, elders. Um, I think you called it Indian medicine and uh, just wanted to clarify for our listeners, what you're talking about are the medicines um, that our knowledge keepers and elders have known about for many years and have earned the rights to understand where those medicines grow, what, what they're used for. um, And it's really working with the spirit of that medicine and I'll give you an example, is uh, you talked about the chemicals of the methamphetamines and how they linger and they stay. The same thing happened for youth who were sniffing gas in, in other solvents. So I used to work in, in uh, treatment for young people related to solvent abuse. They were sniffing gas and other things like aerosols. Um, but in that, Detox was also uh, difficult for these young people because the solvents get stored in our lipids, our fatty cells, and they can stay there for a long time. And we wanted to, we approached uh, a number of different elders who worked with medicines. They were trained in medicines um, all their life. And one of the medicines that they instructed us to use with the youth was valerian root. And they, and so they, they gave us a recipe for valerian root and, and a couple of other medicines um, that we were to make a tea out of. And mm-hmm. then depending on how much uh, and how often, how frequently the youth were sniffing gas and other chemicals, then we um, provided them with that tea uh, on a regular basis. Some was more free, free, some of the youth uh, drank the tea more frequently than other youth, but the valerian root um, that you talked about, it was to help them um, to remain calm and not so agitated. So agitation and anxiety is uh, a common side effect in the withdrawals uh, from methamphetamine, and it has to do with those chemicals. 
Um, so thank you for sharing that. So um, I'll just tell you a little story about um, the thing that I found. Um, I, I ask a lot of questions and I'm very straight out when I ask the ladies questions and they, they tell me the truth. So one of them talked about um, sniffing gas at the, when they were a, t- a teenager or a child. And she said, um, she started telling me a story about uh, crystal meth. And I asked her, I said, one day I said, so sometimes I see this guy and he's on the streets. He's, he's just happy and he's praising and he's dancing but he's in the middle of the street and we're like my vehicle's like this close and I'm going zipping right by him and he stays there like that for a few hours and then the next day when I see him he might be so so mad and he's just kicking vehicles this time still in the middle of the street but he's kicking vehicles this time and he's mad so I said so what is that what what is that um, can you help me understand what that is? So she she told me before my friend passed away, and she has experienced this as well. Before my friend passed away, she told me um, that it was God. And I said, God. And she said, yeah, that's God. And she was smiling. I said, so what does God do? And she said, so God, um, he, you'll see, you'll, you smoke to a certain point and you there's it you can't always hit that point but when you do you see God and he tells you all of these amazing things that you're going to do and he tells you he gives you all these ideas in your head and you're going to be such a great person and this and that and then sometimes you smoke just a little bit too much and now when you see God he's so mad at you and he tells you that you're a worthless person that you should just die that's why they're so mad. And she said, the one time my friend, before she passed away, she told me that God was talking to her. Um, he came out of the clouds and he was talking to her and he told her that she needed to kill herself. Um, and this is the only chance that she had to get to heaven. And if she didn't take this chance, she would never get another chance again in her whole life. This is the only one chance and sadly, um, that young lady did take her own life. And when God told her that, she believed it. So the lady that I was sitting with um, at work and I was asking her these questions, I said, so have you seen him? And she told me, yes, I have. And that's not the first time. This is the second time I've actually ever saw that or experienced it. Um, I've already I've taken other drugs before and I've sniffed when I was a child, but um, the only any time that I ever saw this or experienced that or being told that I was worthless or that I needed to kill myself was when I was smoking. I mean, when I was sniffing gas. So there was a similarity there, and I I am pretty sure it has something to do with the chemicals that the makeup of the chemicals that are in both meth and in gas. There's there has to be yes. a similarity there that's uh that's yes, doing is. something to the brain. The chemicals that are uh go mm-hmm. into making up methamphetamine or crystal meth and the solvents are um a lot of times um very similar if not the same. And they were never meant mm-hmm. for human consumption. 
They were made for other purposes, but they have an effect on how our brain works. And the example that you gave of this woman talking about hearing God, we would call that a hallucination. But for them, it's very, very yes. real. It's very real. And she, yeah, she told me and she said, when you see somebody dancing, when you see somebody on the street and they're singing and they're dancing, mm. we can really hear it. We can hear that music. It's just like walking through um, the the exhibition or the fair or whatever, and you hear this loud music in the background. That's what we hear. You can hear that music, and we can see this person walking with us that we're arguing with, but you can't. That's what the youth who were sniffing gas used to talk about, is that they would have, well, they called them joint hallucinations, that as a group, they could create another reality and they could interact and they could all see and hear and experience mm -hmm. the same thing. And that other reality was yeah. a better place than where they lived or the abuse that they might have suffered or the feeling like nobody cared about them. And so it was that kind of experience that mm -hmm. they were looking for that different reality than the everyday reality where there's no, they felt like there was no hope. What, at what point do you see people that you're working mm -hmm. with regain that hope? Sometimes it's, uh, it's not until, unfortunately, it's not until they have hit rock bottom. They, their kids are gone. They're, they're not in their care anymore. They've lost their homes. They've lost everything. Um, Nobody wants them anymore. Parents don't want them to come around the house. They've been disowned by family, and they have absolutely nowhere to go. And they think um, that everybody, everybody hates them. That's what they, when they come in there, they're broken. They are so broken. And that's why we use so much compassion at work and with what we do every day. It's, we show them compassion and we tell them we're proud of them every single day and that's when they start to regain that hope is when we tell them well you're one day sober and proud of you and when because we do um we drug test them um periodically randomly and when we do test them i actually make certificates for them for the first time that they test negative for everything and that is such a big moment in their lives and we have all of our little certificates and we make a little booklet for them and they keep it. And they have their journals in there, the first day thoughts, the first day they come to the program, their thoughts, how they're, how are they scared? Do they think this will work? And then they have their picture there and then they have all of these things that, okay, they went to parenting, they, they went to parenting class. So now we, they have a parenting certificate. They're going to put it in there. Now they, they went through um, self-worth. Now they've got that certificate and they have the um, pictures and the, uh, the the photo shoots and we hire um, makeup artists to come in and do their makeup and we have a photo shoot and then that that's the end of our self-worth. And then we give them a certificate and then they get to put it in their little portfolio. And every single time they put one thing into that portfolio, it's just, they just, it's it just lifts their spirits so much. So the consistent affirmation and the belief in them that their life Yeah, and to tell them 
I'm so proud of you. And we have affirmation cards um, that we have. We have probably about 300 of them every day, including us staff. We look so, so forward to these affirmation cards. And did you choose your card yet? We'll say. So we'll go in and then sometimes it's the ladies that are coming towards us with the cards and we're choosing the cards out of the box. And then we read our card for the day. And then we always tell them that as soon as you start to feel um, low or you start to um, miss home or you're starting to go through withdrawals or anything like that look at that card it means something there's a reason why you picked that card today so we always always tell them that we're here um, we're not going anywhere we're there with them until nine o'clock at night every single day nine in the morning till nine barbara at night. you you've shared so many important things with with our audience uh the folks who have have found the minoba Matsun podcast um and can you can you tell us mm -hmm. what are the most critical things um that we can do to support someone who is wanting to recover from the use of methamphetamines what is the most critical, most important uh, thing that people can do to help somebody on their recovery journey or help them if they choose um, to stop using just for a little while? Support. Support is the biggest thing. And to tell them that you are proud of them. They matter. Yes, you're going to quit five days this time. But next time? You're going to come back and you're going to quit 10 days. Eventually, you're going to make it. And I'm not going to judge you for that. But so I'm that here for you. Encouragement here to help you. helps them to have some hope. It's not putting mm -hmm. expectations on them. Yes. And you tell them that no expectations. And you tell them that I'm, I'm still here. I'm going to be here. When you're ready, you'll know you're ready. And to always, always tell them, that you do care because when that person in their head is talking to them, they're telling them that they're worthless. Nobody loves you. Nobody likes you. You are this, you are that. You have to tell them, no, you are somebody, you matter. Relationships are, are the most critical aspect. And then having the right relationship where you can communicate your belief in them and that their life matters. They're here on this earth for a reason and and there and there's meaning to their life. Well, Barbara, after many years of doing the work that you've been doing, can you tell us what's the one thing that has brought you joy? What is the one difference that you've seen this program make Camp Hope? When we finished our self-worth program the a few months ago um with the ones that are there right now that we had a photo shoot and we had um, invited the uh, makeup artist. We did, we did their hair and the ladies, uh, they made matching ribbon skirts for their daughters for the photo shoot. We did the photo shoot and the smiles and the tears of joy after we were done our photo shoots, when we showed them their pictures and they, they that, that was price this and that was the first time I ever heard them say to tell their daughters that they were beautiful 
first time I heard them to tell each other, oh my God, you look so good. All of those things, it was just, it was so beautiful to see. And it sure, it really gave them hope. And the next day when we returned to work, they were still in their makeup. <laughs> and like even that, and they said, I'm going to start saving up and I'm going to start putting on makeup. I'm going to go see the dentist. I'm going to get teeth and I'm going to, can we have another photo shoot? <laughs> yes, we can. And just seeing that from the day they came in, the pictures that they have in their por portfolios to the day, um, to that day and the pictures that we took that day were so, so beautiful. And every, every single day, something beautiful happens at that place and, Every time you see somebody, the pride, things that they made, um, the pride and the joy that you see in their faces is very, very, that's one of the things that's um, the most rewarding is to see how happy you made somebody, even with just a little thing. Um, and that's uh, exactly what we did yesterday. Oh. Um, one of the ladies did one side of my nails. That's the first time she ever tried it. And she did a very good job. <laughs> I told her, I'm coming back on Friday and you're finishing. <laughs> <laughs> so we ordered a little nail kit off of uh, Amazon. So we're just showing them little things like that. And uh, we do show them how to do um, a lot of artwork and they sell their artwork and they make their extra money for Christmas. And we have to, we always tell them to, we always make sure to tell them not to worry. Don't worry about anything. Um, if you can't give a gift to, if you can't buy a gift for um, your dad, we'll make him one. Like just the encouragement and to see the smile on their faces every day. It's every day something they're very grateful. Barb, thank you for coming on and helping our listeners to understand the impacts of methamphetamine. You've communicated a beautiful story of compassion and hope. You've talked about the difference our culture makes. Thank you so much for joining us on the Minobimatsuin podcast. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Minobimatsuin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps people to find these interviews much easier. And please hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit the website at thunderbirdpf.org and be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for us at thunderbirdpf. Miigwech. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins. <laughs>